Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with another Smart People Should Build Things Adventure for America podcast. Today we have Daniel Chait on the show. He's a serial entrepreneur who, after selling his second business, Lab 49, went to CEOs around the country and asked them what their pain points were. He kept hearing that hiring was a problem, so he built Greenhouse, greenhouse greenhouse.io, which is not a standard resume storage bank, but allows those who are hiring to manage their pipeline of candidates, creating a hiring structure that is consistent with firm objectives and easy for groups to interact with in evaluating applicants at all different stages of the pipeline. In short, his firm made recruiting a lot easier, and VCs think that it's a game changer and backed him to the tune of $60 million doesn't hurt that he already counts Airbnb, Pinterest, the Golden State Warriors, and more as customers. Greenhouse has taken off, and we're lucky to have Daniel here because his company is growing so quickly that he's no doubt badly needed somewhere else. But before we get to Daniel, a word about why we are here. Venture for America is a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. A little about me, just a tiny bit. I launched the Mission Driven Group 12 years ago. It's tough for me to count there. 12 years ago, check out my firm at missiondrivengroup.com. And please remember to like our show on iTunes. It helps others find us. It takes two seconds to do. And subscribe to our show as well so you get up-to-date episodes. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. And before we go to Daniel, I have to ask you, do you need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 77 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website. With hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from, the drag-and-drop editor, there's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're too busy. You're too busy worrying about budget. You're too worry, uh, too busy worrying about scheduling appointments. Too busy to build a website. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. The result is stunning. And now, here's our interview with Daniel Chait. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
And thanks to our mutual friend. I feel like I start most episodes these days with this. Thanks to our mutual friend Eric Schrader for setting this up. Uh, Eric at Vanwise does great work and deserves the deserves the call out. Eric's everyone's mutual friend in the uh, <laughs> software industry in New York, I suppose. Uh, that's very much true. Uh, and, a, and a good friend of mine as well, and uh, someone who his, his two-year-old was at my house uh, the other day sleeping over. So, uh, you know, it, you know what goes around comes around. That's I, good work-life that. balance. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you're a veteran entrepreneur. You know, you're on your, on your third business now, and um, you graduated in 1995 with a computer science degree from Michigan. Is this where you thought your career would take you? Were you like, I'm always going to be an entrepreneur? Uh, yes and no. So I was pathologically unable to work for other people. Uh, I proved that very quickly after I graduated. Um, I started my career as a programmer. And I came to New York. I worked at a huge uh, corporation doing uh, software consulting for faceless organizations in other parts of the world on a giant team. And I just found it really disillusioning and um, worthless. Um, and so I left. And this is now 1997. It's the height of the dot-com boom and the heart of New York. Friends are making millions, and I'm just, like, slaving away as a little, you know, cubicle uh, you know, cubicle farm. And I had a kind of random opportunity to uh, earn some business. A friend of mine's dad worked at Citigroup. And he said, I've got this project. We're paying some outside vendor hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to maintain this piece of software that we don't need and don't really understand. You guys are techie. Um, I have 70 grand left in my budget. It's like the end of November. If I don't spend the 70 grand, I lose it can you do the project? And we basically said, sure, and quit our jobs. And so my friend and I started Business Velocity um, with Citigroup as our first customer, uh, you know, with really no plan whatsoever. But I knew immediately that you know, working for myself and not uh, slaving away in this cubicle farm was, was kind of my destiny. I was always the kind of kid that was doing technical stuff for money as a teenager and throughout college. Like my summer vacations weren't trips around the world or, or, or you, know, um, you know, wine tasting or whatever one does when, when they're young. I was doing software projects for money for school districts and businesses since I was a, a kid. I want to meet that 13-year-old who's going to wine tasting summer, summer, uh, summer I guess. Uh, trip. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I picture friends, you know, they're going international. I don't know where they go to Spain or something. I was like, no, I was sitting in like Ann Arbor, like clacking away in my uh, Windows, you know, 3.0 computer. So you, so you have the $70,000. So you basically bootstrapped off $70,000. What did business velocity come and, and you shut it down? What happened that, it, that you decided like, hey, this isn't the gig for you for life? Yeah, so that was kind of our seed funding, if you will. I mean, we were both very young and we had very low overhead. So we did this project, but really we said, okay, this is our opportunity to take some time and and figure out the business that we wanted to run. And uh, eventually we hit on a product idea that was pretty good. We basically were build, we built some software that would help uh, investment bankers who prepare lots of presentations to win business to do M&A and IPOs. Uh, they're producing presentations by the thousand across the world, and none of those presentations look like each other. So you'd have a deck coming out of you know one office and, and another office had different information in them, and they look differently. So we had this kind of piece of software that they could pull data from a centralized database and prepare a single kind of presentation that looked the same no matter who made it and could be kept updated, which was awesome in a world where people were pitching thousands of IPOs a month in 1998. <laughs> Not so much in 2000. Right. Um, so, you know, we were super young. We were very inexperienced and, and way undercapitalized. And this is back in a time where there was no SaaS, there was no cloud delivery. We had a physical piece of hardware that you had to install the software on. We had a physical piece of software on a disk that they had to like put in and they had a people to manage it. It was a big, you know, it was, it was expensive to build. It was expensive to buy and to operate. And so 
uh, you know, very quickly when the IPO market crashed and much of the investment banking business in New York shut down, we, we had to shut our doors. So that was my uh, illustrious entry into the entrepreneurial world. I, I think I'll put a positive spin on it. It, it. it sounds like you're ahead of your time in some ways because you know the technology wasn't there uh, for, you to, for you to get there. I mean, I think we had a really good solution, but I think like a lot of technical people, um, you know, I hadn't yet learned the lesson that that's not, that's not enough. You, know, right. you, have, you, you definitely solved the workflow problem that your users had. Like, okay, that's a good start. Right, the rest of it kind of had you know had, had yet to come to fruition. I think. So it's but you weren't uh, you weren't stung by it because you know shortly thereafter you you started Lab Forty Nine, which was another tech consulting firm um, for the financial services industry, and um, you started at your at your kitchen table. It sounded like it was also fa- fairly bootstrappy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and you spent like almost uh, you know a, a decade building this company. Um, so, you know, I mean, were there clear lessons from, from the first go-round that you applied to make sure that the second one worked, or was it just all timing? Yeah, no, so this was entirely different. So uh, fast forward, and now it's 2002, so it's been a couple years. I, I met a couple guys that were amazing technically, that I really got along with, that, that we really clicked. Um, and by the way, who in their own backgrounds had also started and finished <laughs> uh, software <laughs> product companies. So we all had this similar experience of having, you know, started these companies, and kind of learning the lesson that you're on this one end of the risk reward curve that you're basically going to become big or you're going to bust. And so we we sat down and we said, well, look, let's do something a little bit less risky. Let's do something that we can um, afford to start, and then we can grow with the with the resources we had, which was which was very little. Um, and you know, starting consulting is really easy. You open up your laptop, you're a consultant. Indeed, right. I, I've, d- I've done the same thing. Exactly. So, <laughs> so getting started was super, exactly. Yeah. So getting started was 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 really easy. And basically, once you get some business, you can kind of like generate a lifestyle and kind of keep going from client to client. Uh, but we wanted to grow the company and, and do something significant. So the first thing we said, well, we have to have a focus. We can't just be three guys with with, with programming skills. Um, and we saw that the finance industry was going through this incredible transformation, that banks were turning from places where people waved pink pieces of paper at each other to places where computers traded against each other with no people in between. Um, and they needed this a tremendous amount of technology innovation that was aligned with their business goals, that they couldn't get in-house, that they couldn't get on the street. There was a whole industry set up to sell contingent labor, technical labor, right? If you want a Java programmer by the hour, you can find them fairly efficiently. But if you want something great built to solve your business problem, there was no one to do that. And so we set about with Lab 49 to say, we're going to help design and build the next generation of financial applications for leading leading companies. And it turns out that there was a effectively infinite demand for that. Hmm. The constraint was supply, right? If we couldn't, if it was beyond the three of us, you know, if we couldn't find the people that we needed to deliver that, that very um, uh, compelling promise, we didn't have a business. And those people who are very technical, who are very creative, who are very friendly and can talk to customers, who are reliable, and who would come work in the global financial capitals of the world and understand finance, well, everybody wants those. All of our customers wanted those people. Mm-hmm. And our customers had more money than us and more recruiters than us. And so that was kind of where I leapt into this world of talent acquisition and started recruiting. And we just said, like, well, if we need to find people that the banks aren't looking for because they don't look right or they didn't go to the right school or they don't have the right background – or we have to be faster. I have to be able to get you an offer before you even have your on-site interview in Midtown. Um, if we could be smarter or if we could be faster, we could reliably find the people we needed to build our business and survive. If we couldn't, we were dead. So I became a recruiter. So 
you had to wrap up at at, at lab uh, lab forty nine. Like, was it you had this intuition? You're like, hey guys, I guess I'm just gonna gonna wrap this up. Or was it do you have a fortuitous exit at the time? How, how did it work? Yeah, no, I did. I, I you know I did the job for a long time. I mean, ran the business uh, together with my my co founders for about ten years. Uh, we grew the business to uh, you know pretty significant size. It had all the major investment banks as customers, and really set out what we what we tried to do, which was to to build this new capability for the finance industry. Um, at this time, I'm now running global HR, so I'm doing talent acquisition, talent management for our organization for many years in a row, which was a great challenge and really interesting to learn, but it had kind of become an operational um, component at that point. It was it was more just like show up every day and, and turn the crank, and I thought, there's better people than me that are equipped to, to, to hold that chair. I wanted to build something. So you know, I talked about with my co-founders and with, with our um, with our with our partners, hey, you know, is there some other thing I can do inside the organization to build and to grow and to invest? But ultimately, it made sense to partner. So, yeah, I took an exit um, and uh, decided I'd build my next business uh, outside of lab on my own. It's interesting, like, that you, that you took an exit. You know, you're um, pretty deep in your career. I mean, was it all... all you know, daunting to say, "Hey, I'm, I'm going to do this all over again." I mean, I can see the excitement, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing not. No, I, in case you can't tell, like, I'm pretty clear at what my strengths and weaknesses are, and yeah, I, I knew that I, I, you know, sitting there and just like tightening the screws every once in a while and like minding the knitting, and that's what needed to be done. I mean, it was about operational excellence and just continuing to turn the crank on this on the position. wasn't what I wasn't where I could be, and as you saw earlier in my career. When I'm somewhere where I'm not doing what 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 I what I feel I can do best, like I just don't want to do it anymore. And on the other side, like I'm really good at building stuff. I like it. I'm I'm I'm, I'm enjoy, I enjoy it. I'm good at it. Um, and those have um, you know c- compel me to, to to do it. So yeah, I mean I just I wanted to start something over and build something big. Um, and just like in the last time, you know I really thought okay. Do I want to do a venture back company, and do, or do I want to bootstrap it again? And what are the pros and cons of that? And that kind of led us uh, down the road of, of what became Greenhouse now. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, because you you know you started one one business from your kitchen table, and uh, you know this one, um, you know you 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 chose not to start at your kitchen table. You went with some angel funding at the beginning. What was the, what was the thought process there? Yeah, well, the world had changed, and so had I. So what I mean by that, you know, now. There is a very robust um, system of funding tech startups that didn't really exist in the same, certainly in the same way or to the same degree, definitely not in New York 10, 15 years ago. So that new set of options was, was open to us and was mu- much more attractive than it was you know, in the early 2000s and, and, and previously. And at the same time, in my, my own life, like you know, I'd, now I'd had a career. I've been at this for 15 years or so. I wanted to do something that had a lot of impact, and I saw the opportunity to build a SaaS company as a way to grow really quickly and achieve something um, fairly substantial, which I thought at the stage I am in my career, like having come off of, of a pretty good run at, at Lab 49 and having and having done quite a, quite a few things, you know, I wanted to do something that I thought, you know, you kind of ratchet your own expectations for yourself up. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it this is smart people should build things the venture for america podcast we're talking daniel chait and and uh we're talking about his choice to go the vc route or the uh or the or the bootstrappers route and um 
I I always talk about you know we we talk a lot here about bootstrapping because that's maybe my bias. Um, not that there's anything wrong with taking taking cash from from investors, and we'll we'll talk about that later because you've done a tremendous job of raising money. Um, but uh, but if you are looking to do things, uh, you know, uh, on the on the cheap to start at least, um, if you need a website, you can always do it yourself and do it with Wix.com. No matter what business you're in, you can get your site live today. It's simple to customize. If you don't know how to code, that's not a problem because there's no coding needed. And as Daniel told you, it can be tough to get that technical talent at times to come in and start coding for you. Um, Wix has has something for everyone with hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from. If you're not a coder, it's not a problem. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. You can go to Wix.com and sign up for an entirely free account today. No credit card required. Go to Wix.com today. Um, okay, so we're, ta- we're talking about uh, about raising um, VC money, and I mean so. Uh, you know, in four years, you this. I mean, this company has just has just completely taken off. I mean, you've raised sixty million dollars, including a, a pretty whopping thirty-five million dollars last August, which is, I think, already a pretty tough funding environment. And you're out there raising thirty-five million dollars. Well, I mean, what did Greenhouse get so right? From well, I guess let's start from a VC perspective because I'm talking about the money. Yeah. So um, the first thing I'll say is. There's no such thing as raising one round of venture capital. And you talked earlier about this kind of choice of, you know, do you want to bootstrap or raise VC? And you may have heard the saying, you know, there's no such thing as being a little bit pregnant. Mm. It's the same thing. You don't raise a million dollars to start your company from venture capitalists and then be done. Like, you're on the VC track or you're not. And so having thought about it at the beginning, um, you know, and making that choice, we really tried to design a business that would succeed as a venture-backed business. And so when we looked at recruiting software, what we saw was there was, a, a legacy of uh, hundreds of companies that try to do something in our space, something to help recruiters uh, recruit, um, that didn't amount to much. And so we, we first really looked at, well, what are those what are those folks done that that's caused this kind of this kind of uh, failure, and how can we design our business to do something differently? And I, I would say there's a few things that that we came out with. Number one, we realized that there was a much more interesting problem to be solved in the kind of applicant tracking software, recruiting software world that no one had really tried before, which is to say, previously recruiting software was primarily oriented around paperwork and administrative problems for recruiters. When you start recruiting, you realize that you've got lots of problems to like organize resumes and shuffle them around and collect notes. And and it's just, it's not really a recording data problem. And we said, well, hang on a sec. If you're trying to succeed as a business, you certainly know in today's world that your people are your most important asset and that getting those people is one of the most important things you can do. It's hard. And in order to succeed at it, you have to do a certain set of things that are difficult to do and that your software isn't helping with. And so the first thing we did was we said, let's try to help companies do those things that matter, that are hard for them to do, and that will help them succeed at finding and hiring the people that they need to do. It's a better kind of problem than making recruiters a little bit more efficient or helping organize their paperwork and track their applicants. So that was kind of the first thing that we did. The second was we said, well, what are the forces that all these companies have been subject to that have caused them to you know, kind of not achieve any kind of scale? And how do we break out of that? And what you see is, especially in the kind of enterprise software world, it's very hard to maintain any kind of competitive advantage. If you build a feature that looks really nice, that customers want to use, the other guy down the street can build it also. Software is getting cheaper and cheaper to build. So the fact that you have a smart idea for a feature is never a way to build a sustainable advantage. What we saw, though, 
was that there was this tremendous blooming of innovation that was being applied to recruiting. Things like using the video camera on your laptop or on your phone to interview a candidate remotely. Things like connecting social networks and social media online data to find new ways to identify and source candidates. Um, things like letting them even sign their offer paperwork online instead of sending paperwork back and forth over, over paperwork. All this new technology was being, was being applied to recruiting, but none of it worked together. Right? And so we, th we saw this opportunity to kind of unify this whole ecosystem into a, a seamless plant sitting on top of the greenhouse platform. So everything you ever need to in recruiting, you can do either in greenhouse or through one of these partners. And building that ecosystem is a tremendous investment and very difficult. But having started to do that, that does start to become much more of a sustainable kind of long-term advantage for our company. What's interesting to me is that you know, you're able to say, we started to really look at the market and look at the problem, and we realized that no one had tried it. And, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking to myself, like, you're looking at it going, no one's tried it, and are you saying to yourself, like, really? Like, really no one's tried it? Like, I mean, was there a point where you're just like, this is just so odd? Like, I feel like there's that intuition where people are like, I want to do this because there's a hole in the market. And like, you know, sort of like, are you like, it, it can't be possible that, this, that there isn't something like this out there at this point? Yeah, we, sa we said that a lot. And we really tried to find it. Um, and then we heard that a lot when we went out to raise money. We would say things like, well, here's what our product is going to do. It's going to help customers uh, figure out um, what questions they want to ask when they interview a candidate, and then ask those questions to the candidates and write down the answers. <laughs> no, right. And people would be like, well, obviously, that's what everyone's doing. Like, no, most companies don't do that. Most companies grab somebody off their cubicle, throw them in a conference room and say, go meet with Bob and say, should we hire them? And you're done. Right. And it doesn't work. And everybody knows it doesn't work. So the idea of like, what's the right way to put a structured hiring process in place? And what are those best practices that you ought to follow that, that, that leading organizations do was a new idea in itself. If you read a, comp if you read a, if you read a book like Work Rules, right, Laszlo Bach, the he head of recruiting right. at Google, they talk about the journey that they've gone down over millions of interviews over more than a decade with really smart people doing uh, complex analytics to understand the real drivers of success in recruiting. And that's only in the last you know, 15 years mm -hmm. or less. So the science of doing this and the, and the ways that companies want to work is new. And at the same time, the problem is much more prevalent and important than it used to be in the you know, mid-century and, and earlier during the Industrial Revolution, finding exactly the right person with exactly the right personality and skills to stand at that assembly line wasn't so important. Mm -hmm. But now when an organization is basically nothing more than, than its people and how they interact with each other, it's everything. And so all this stuff is very new. Um, and that's why, like, the legacy had been first uh, seen through the eyes of kind of the operational side of things. That was the old HR mentality was it's an operational department focused on moving paperwork around and not getting you sued. And the new kind of idea of like, hey, there's this people team out there that's trying to help you win, that's trying to find the right talent and put it in place so that you can achieve, you, know, you can become Google, not Yahoo or Lycos. That's the, <laughs> that's the whole thing. And and people, that's kind of a new idea. I can't tell you how many times I've had like uh, an appointment to hire someone on my schedule, and I've thought to myself like, I got to get to writing down these questions. I got I got to do it. And then it's been like, oh, my day got away from me. I'll just walk in and wing it. And been like, right. that's like I almost deprived this person of an opportunity to talk to me about why they're great. Like I didn't I didn't have the tools to allow them to interview well for this job. Like I, I didn't like them for the wrong reasons because I was disorganized. Yes, that's very common. And yeah. that's fundamental to what we what we solve. I'm sorry if you're out there and you interviewed with me. Uh, so, um, I found but, that's that also, so, but that's so sad. It like, is it's sad. so easy to fix. And so, you know, we, we looked at this stuff and I was like, we have basically like these three factors. There's a problem that really, really matters, right? If, you, if I can tell a CEO, 
We're gonna help you get recruiting right. Like they light up, they wanna do that. Number two, generally it sucks. <laughs> like I don't go into a lot of offices where they say recruiting is humming along and everything is great. Like everybody feels the pain and candidates, as you said earlier, they notice it and they think that was kind of sad. I had to go to this company and get asked about my resume by five different people. Mm-hmm. And then I had to go home and they said they couldn't decide and can I come back and spend another day? It's depressing. Mm-hmm. Executives, like they feel like they're not getting out of recruiting. And of course, sitting in a recruiter's chair, you just feel frustrated and helpless to move the organization forward at all. So everyone's feeling the pain. That's kind of the second thing. And then last is I felt like we could do something about it, right? So there's other big problems like putting a man on Mars or solving our hydrocarbon problems. I don't have anything to say about But I knew that the way that most organizations go about finding the right people, interviewing those people, and bringing them on board was pretty straightforward to solve if we could just get them to change their behavior a little bit and do things do things differently. So it's super interesting to me that you that you like kind of designed a VC backed company. I'm not sure anyone's talked about like that before. I think I find that very very interesting. From 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 your perspective, like what did what did you get? Like it, it, it seems I'm not a tech guy, but it seems to me, and I guess you've had a lot of experience, and so so maybe that was obviously helpful. But like, I, I or obviously that's helpful. But like, I mean, how do you get? How do you actually? How do you get a product like that right? How do you how do you look at all those disparate pieces and say, yes, this is this is my vision, what we're starting out with, and we're going to get there. And obviously, there's probably some twists and turns along the way, but like, yeah, we got something that really does work the way we expect it to work. Well, I'll tell you the secret that I chose, which is find the right person. <laughs> okay. So, um, and then I can tell you how he thinks about it and what I've learned. So, sure. I was fortunate that um, I started Greenhouse with uh, an amazing co-founder, John Strauss, who I went to college with. I'd known him for 20 years. We never worked together. And I knew he did this thing called product management, but I didn't really know what product management did. It sounded like one of those silly jobs that people have when they don't really know how to do anything. Is like a poli-sci degree. I have an engineering degree. I can really do stuff, right? Well... It turns out that is it's the answer to your question. It turns out that um, when you try to build a product, there's all kinds of most of the forces that are acting on you are are guiding you in the wrong direction, right? So you hear things from customers, you hear things from prospects that are different. So you have people. We hear this still every day. People saying, "I would only buy Greenhouse if it had X feature," mm-hmm. and we look at our hundreds, thousands of customers. None of them ask for that feature. <laughs> so prospects want it, but customers don't. You have customers asking for stuff that isn't what they want and doesn't represent how they work. Um, you have uh, ideas that we have. Um, you, you know that that we you know we're trying to get people to do these certain things. We we can build those. But if we only focus on our stuff, we'd have this pie in the sky thing that nobody would really use. So what you see in most organizations is like there's this imbalance and they just focus on one of those signals and they get it wrong. They either just do the stuff that helps them win the next deal and they get through every RFP and they have a product nobody will use. Or they just listen to their customers and they build stuff that solves this narrow set of problems that nobody else wants to go and they can't go anywhere. Or they just do their own dreams and they build something that may aspire to some 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 beauty, beauty beautiful outcome but nobody can use it, nobody wants it, nobody gets it. Mm-hmm. And so I think the real, the real brilliance that, that John brought to the, to, the, mm-hmm. to the equation was to say, let's listen to all that feedback, because there's great stuff in all those areas, but let's be really judicious about what we choose to do and really balanced about our approach of how, how we go about doing it. And recognizing you can never starve any one of those things, um, but you have, to be, you have to make a lot of really difficult choices and, and, and challenging trade-offs. And that's just uncomfortable for most people, especially most entrepreneurs. They're excitable. They're, you know, I get a new idea every day I want to go do, <laughs> and I run over to his desk, and now I've been trained, <laughs> right? No. 
like <laughs> compare it to the thousand other great ideas we also have and, and figure out what we ought to do next. And um, it's a difficult, it's a very, it takes a lot of discipline. Um, and, and, and I think the combination that he and I have of kind of vision and discipline uh, added up to something something different and special. I mean, it's interesting. You guys are, are, are you've got to be users of your own product, I'm sure. So, you know, you've scaled. Like, I I think I saw something online that you went from 45 people in 2015 to 125 only four months later. So, I mean, how how big are you guys now in terms yeah, of headcount? We finished the year at about 180. So we 180. did 45 to 180 in a year. So I mean, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's it was a huge huge growth. I, mean, I have to imagine you used your tools and and discovered uh, you know how, how it all works yourself. I mean, you know, is that, is that user experience? That user experience has got to be helpful to you. No, it's a great question. So we actually um, uh, um, we put in place for our own internal people practices a really unique leader, someone that doesn't look like most HR people and doesn't have the background of most HR people, which is what I did. 15 years ago when I started HR, I was an engineer and an entrepreneur. So I wasn't particularly scared by that. But we brought in someone who was a friend of mine who had started a business, who started her career as a derivatives trader uh, downtown here on, on Wall Street, and then started an adventure travel business, sold it to Living Social, scaled up the business really big, so it had a lot of entrepreneurial success. Um, and she took over the job um, earlier in this in this year of 2015 of, of, of fast growth as our head of people and strategy, right? So it's a two-headed job. Uh, and it gets to the question that you're asking because on the one hand, her job is to run our internal people practices, talent acquisition and talent management and talent operations to make sure that we do the things that we need to do to bring in the people and make them successful. But also in her role as head of strategy, she thinks about what is that next set of, of ideas and practices that the industry and that our own product needs to reflect? And so as we're learning these lessons, you know, she's hammering on the product and saying like, oh guys, like we're missing this thing. We need to have our reports look a different way or this workflow isn't quite right. Um, and she's talking to our customers and she's um, running uh, our conferences and trainings for the industry to kind of bring these ideas to the forefront. So we set ourselves up a little bit uniquely where our own people practices are <coughs> positioned to drive business strategy. I'm, I'm, I think I'm still kind of in shock from that 45 to what it was. I think you said 185. Um, at, at, you know, at this point, I mean, how do you integrate that number of people to so that you know things can still work? It's very hard. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that we um, have all the answers. Um, it's ongoing. Um, people are complicated and relationships are challenging. Right. So I would say the first thing is like hiring that number of people is itself a huge amount of effort and work that takes away from all, um, all the other effort and work that you otherwise could be doing. So during this year of kind of ballooning uh, team growth, we took on uh, you know some, some management debt that we're now paying down. There were things that we pushed off that we're now tackling, things like internal communication, things like management structure and philosophy, um, how do we raise and promote people. A lot of these kind of uh, practices we didn't have when we were 40 people, right? Everyone could fit around a table. Um, so now we're starting to figure those things out. And, 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 and you know, um, uh, Jonathan Basker, who's a, a kind of HR nerd, a friend of mine here in, in, in New York, uh, tweeted something. I'm going to get the wording wrong, but I thought it was very insightful to this point. He said, the problem with experimenting in people practice is that all your experiments are run in production, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like. You just try, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's inherently like an iterative process and you, work, and you work your way forward. But I think what we've done well is we first started from a set of um, core values and a mission that we were on, and that's why people came to work at our company. And I think 
particularly now that the funding environment has changed a little bit, I think a lot of companies are finding that when things were going great and they sold their employees on endless free sushi and kind bars, <laughs> um, that when the when the when the when the when the music stops, they're not happy and they leave because that's not what they came there for. Um, we never promised that to our to our employees, right? We said, hey, look, we're trying to accomplish something that's pretty ambitious, that's definitely very hard, and um, if you're motivated by helping companies get better at people, which a lot of people aren't, <laughs> you know, this is a really compelling opportunity to you. And so people kind of signed up for that from the get-go so that when you encounter the inevitable challenges, um, you know, and, and, and I'll be the first to say that, you know, starting and running and, you know, succeeding at a business is incredibly difficult and incredibly contingent. When you encounter those challenges, people are prepared for it. It's interesting you, you, know, you talk about the about the the perks, but it, 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 I'll jump ahead to one of my other questions because because it's raised, um, you've kind of raised it tangentially, which is, you know, do you worry that you're getting people who are buying into the excitement of a growing tech firm, which is obviously not a bad thing, but maybe aren't buying into the product, the vision, even even if they're telling themselves they are. Like we we my company, you know. We see this all the time. We help thousands of people get into business school, um, and we see these people who, you know, kind of like in 2008, were like, "Oh, I, I want to be in financial services," and that are that are now like, "I want to be in tech." And it's like they're kind of the same person, but they're just having convincing themselves of different things because the money is in different places now. I don't I don't feel like they're fundamentally changed their perspective, and um, and you know, obviously different human beings, but I'm I'm saying a, a group of of individuals. So uh, you're already I'm, yeah. I'm this is one of my longest winded questions of all time. But is this is this no. something that, that that worries you that people are, are jumping on board for the wrong reasons, even if they're not I- explicitly acknowledging it themselves. Yeah, it's a risk, right? Absolutely, um, and something that we're very conscious of. That I'm very conscious of, and that that you, you have to be you have to be aware of if you're if, you know or, you know if you're in if you're in this industry, especially in a year like we had, um, where we were growing so quickly, and then we could show up in the morning and all the charts are up on the right every day. Like right. that level of excitement kind of masks any underlying tension or problem right. or confusion because people are just so excited that all that stuff is happening. Um, you know, look, I mean, you're still maybe subject to that. I mean, there's no getting around it. Um, but I think we, I think the first step is being aware that that's an issue and making sure of what you're putting out there is not, a, you know, is a, to the degree possible, you know, not, not attractive to the people who are in, in for the wrong reasons and, and attractive to people who are in it for the right reasons. So, you know, we've always been very careful with um, stock option packages, and we're you know we're not out there being like, our stock options are going to make you a billionaire. We guarantee it. You know, <laughs> um, and look, we have a nice office that's easy to get to, but we're not like, hey, like greenhouse is like this, you know, amazing. Gor- <laughs> you know, you get to have fun and play ping pong all day and endless beer on tap or whatever. It's like, yeah, we have a good time. It's a nice environment, but like, it's hard, and we're trying to do something that matters to us. And, you know, you got to realize if you don't want that, don't come here. I think what we do have going for us is that the world of people who think recruiting is like their dream is vanishingly small. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that probably like maybe that's something a little bit better about Greenhouse and other places is like, yeah, a lot of people are going to get excited about the next app or, you know, game or something that's fun or popular culture. But, um, 
you know, when you're an HR nerd, like, you know, people even noticing you and wanting to do a podcast is like pretty revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about like, you know, wake up in the morning, seeing everything just, you know, exploding high to the right. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you had this like six rounds of venture capital in, in four years, um, you know, three rounds from August 2014 to 2015. Like in that big year, were you just wrong about how much money you had to raise? Were you, were you just wrong in a nice way about how the company was going to grow and just it just kept kept booming beyond you, or was there money just chasing you, saying, "Hey, take it"? Yeah, that was my uh, Annus Mirabilis, right? Like uh, Albert Einstein <laughs> in 1906, he came out with these three fundamental papers of physics all in a year, and then basically never did anything again. That's kind of me. Um, yeah, I mean. Look, it was a good time for fundraising. You know, there was a long-term boom from, you know, 2012 to, you know, 2015 that we were right in the middle of, and so timing worked really well. It's nice. Um, I've always said since the get-go, like, timing's out of your control, and there will be times when raising money is really easy and times when raising money is really hard, and so you try to raise when it's when it's good and, 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 and you know, get through the parts where it's not. Um, I think we definitely made some – so actually it turns out our Series A – which was in the middle of 2014, was not at a great time. Um, uh, pr- prices had, had dropped about 30 35% in the first quarter of that year because Box was struggling to mm. launch their IPO. And I was like, I kept being like, what does that have to do with me again? Yeah. But, you know, everyone in, in, everyone in, in, in VC basically turtled at the same time. And it's, a, it's a herd mentality. And so prices moved away from us, and we raised the round because we had to raise the round. Uh, subsequent to that, we actually raised a smaller B round than we wanted to. So we knew we were on a fast growth curve. We kind of see where it was headed. And we thought, okay, let's raise, I think ultimately the round ended up at about 13 and a half million. Uh, let's raise that round instead of what a lot of B rounds were at the time of 25, 30 million. Because if we grow the way we think we're going to, we'll be able to raise the incremental tw- in the next 12 or 10 or 15 cheaper. Uh, on better terms later. And so that was where we kind of pulled back and we said, let's raise a, a relatively moderate you know, B round. And then we raised a pretty big C round uh, you know, and, you know, when, when, when we had grown, grown into it a bit. And you did an acquisition in, in November 2015 buying Parklet, um, which was a San Francisco-based startup. And acquisitions are notoriously difficult to get right, often because of culture. Um, did you do anything in particular to make sure that Parklet and, and Greenhouse had a successful marriage? No, I think it's illustrative of the point you're making, which is they're incredibly difficult to get right. Um, I would argue there's no such thing as getting it 100% right. So here's what we had going for us with Parkley. Here's what we saw on the way in. We said, here's a company that's pretty much the perfect size for us to acquire. They were about 10% of our size, which in terms of like, we were about 150 people. They were 15, number of customers, however you want to look at it. Um, so not too big that we couldn't digest them, but not too small that it was really just an aqua hire. I mean, we really, you know, it was, it was the, right, the right size of business. The products were already integrated. So Parklet was employee mm. onboarding software where we had employee recruiting software. And the moment you sign your offer paperwork, you could pump over into Parklet and become a pre-hire and have this great uh, you know, new hire welcoming experience until the day you joined. And so the products were seamless and they already worked together. We already had about half of, the, of their customers in common. So about half of the, the Parklet customers were already using Greenhouse to recruit. And some of those accounts we'd won together. We'd, our sales team and their sales team were mm. out in the field in the same accounts joint pitching and selling, so we knew the people. And lastly, their founder and CEO, uh, uh, Dane Hurtabies, had spoken at our Nalgo customer conference on stage and impressed our audience. So, in almost, and they were a young startup in San Francisco, like right near our offices, like the, like the people were, were a lot like our people. Um, so in almost every way imaginable, it was set up to be perfect, and yet. 
right? So it's hard. You know, you've got people who let's take 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 what we went through from 15 to 150, the same evolution, and yeah, we did it really fast, but like it was continuous. We did it with those people, you know, over a period of of, of months, and then here you have these 15 people that now come and join a 150-person company, which feels different. There's more bureaucracy. There's more layers. There's more communication. You don't know everyone. Um, you've got two products that work together but aren't the same. So the logins and the navigation are different. Um, and some of the things that we had already gone through from like enterprise security and infrastructure along the way, they were still earlier in the journey. So we had to go back and like make those same investments over again. And some of that w- could piggyback on our infrastructure, but there's a lot of technical work to do. So however you look at it, as perfect as it could possibly be. And by the way, we're an HR, we're a people company. So right. we were very focused on these people and what's their experience and giving them all buddies and doing a lot of training and onboarding. So we weren't blind to these issues. We tried really hard. Um, and, and and lastly, you know, we had uh, in, in uh, Nabil Malik from Five Capital basically hand-holding us through the way and a guy who's done probably a thousand M&A transactions in his mm-hmm. life. So we had, you know, experience on our team. We had everything else. It's just it just takes an investment. It's just hard to do. So yeah, I mean, we did about as well as you can as you can do, and we just relaunched the product last month at our customer conference as greenhouse onboarding, um, and so it's it's great. It's well on track. But uh, if you're considering acquiring a company, I would say it's impossible to overestimate the amount of post acquisition integration work you have to do on all these different dimensions, and it's always going to be harder and, and and take longer than you did, think. Did you, are they, did you leave them in San Francisco? Or are they are they here? Yeah, largely. They, we yeah. have a San Francisco office, so they kind of entered okay. our of office, and so we, yeah, it, it fit nicely. And in terms of the VCs, I mean, you said this of Thrive Capital, they're very smart, very hands on, very involved. They're not some corner office banker looking at a spreadsheet. How do you, <laughs> that's a quote from you, uh, <laughs> how do you balance the, like, I think it's great that you're enthusiastic with their involvement, but how do you balance their involvement with your own independence as a CEO and your own vision, and is there such thing as too much help from it's someone? It's very unfair of you to use my own words against me. That's out of bounds. Um, no, I, it's a good question, and I think um, it's, you know, it's about the right kind of, kind of involvement. Um, now, you could ask what's the right kind of involvement. I'd say that's very dependent on, on the entrepreneur and what, what, what they're looking for. So for me, you know, I'm, I started this company later in my career, having already done you know, you know, some businesses, or, you know, as we talked about. And so there was some pretty fundamental stuff that a lot of VCs, I think, look to add value to their companies that they join that we didn't want. And that if we wanted and needed would kind of go counter to the story that we were telling that we kind of had it and we knew what we were doing. Um, so, you know, you, that was great. I mean, you definitely see a lot of companies where, you know, their books are a mess and, you know, they don't, they don't, know how, they don't understand how sales works because they're just a product person or vice versa or whatever. Like, we knew we had a bunch of stuff in, in place and, and we weren't looking for people to override or, 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 or jump in where, where it wasn't needed. What I knew we didn't have in the early days was I didn't know anything about venture capital. So I was looking at my early investors to say, like, help me along this journey and introduce me to later VCs. Um, and as we've gotten as we've gotten bigger and, 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 you know, you talk about Thrive, well, first of all, all of our earlier investors, institutional investors, are West Coast, right? And so Thrive is here in New York. So we now have the ability to kind of collaborate with them you know, here in, in the city. Um, as I mentioned, I mean, we would have never been able to pull off this acquisition without the resources that they brought to bear. So it's like pretty specialized stuff. Um, and I think, you know, I hear a lot of stories about the way boards work and the way entrepreneurs uh, interact with their investors. I think we've gotten really lucky 
with investors who um, are kind of open-minded and collaborative. They roll. I guess I expected them to do less than they do, and I think where that comment came from is like I kind of thought they'd be um, interested in telling you what to do, like kind of parachuting in, looking at your deck, telling you you're doing everything wrong and you're an idiot, and when I, in my day we did everything better and then leaving and never doing anything else. And that's what I mean, like they're not that. Um, they're hands-on in a way where it's like let's look at the companies that we've invested in that aren't using greenhouse and figure out how to get them all using greenhouse and be like, Oh, that's a great idea. Mm. Like, I'll think about that. And be like, no, 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 here's the spreadsheet. Like, here's the people we know, like, let's set up some conversations with you. Mm -hmm. It's like real hands on stuff in like a, um, ego free way. Like, Mm -hmm. no, they're willing to like do work, like legit, like grind on Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, like, Hey, we have a bunch of data we're trying to make sense of like out of Salesforce, like send me the, you know, the VCs will say, send me the Excel dump. I'll work on it with one of our analysts for a week and, and give you some insights. Like, mm. That's really helpful. Right. And that's not glamorous work, and that's not bossing you around. That's like having a bunch of incredibly smart, very experienced people that are willing to, 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 to help you know move your business forward. I have to admit, I, I mean, I, look, I've, I've never dealt with VCs, but I think my imagination was 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 like yours yeah for sure i I don't put a lot of guests in the show maybe i'm asking the wrong questions but no one's ever talked to them before just that kind of like really someone you know really doing that gritty work that's really interesting yeah no all my all my instincts about about venture capitalists have been wrong okay so i'm curious about this instinct which is i mean vcs want an exit they want their money back they want their 10x return um but lots of founders like love their company and i I, many imagine you know staying forever building growing etc You've started a few companies. I mean, is it could this be your last job? Or when you when you start a company like you, where you where you really imagine VC being a part of it, are you imagining that you're gonna that it's inevitable that you're gonna exit and that someone else is gonna be you know leading the greenhouse ship one day? I think those are very different questions. So let me kind of okay. take them apart. Um, you know, investors get their money out of investments in a few ways, and everybody knows those ways. And hopefully, if you do a good job and build a good, successful company, some of those ways are available to you. Right. Um, as far as myself, you know, I mean, I will run. I mean, I love what I do. I love the fact that it's a continuous amount of growth. And I think one thing that's unique to what I'm doing now that I've never done before is I'm the CEO, which means there's kind of no ceiling, <laughs> right? Um, when I was when I was a partner of of of, of uh, you know three, and I had my role as running HR, like well once HR is kind of built and runs, like you're kind of you're kind of done. Um, but I can do anything I want. Like people, you hear in the tech press a lot of oh you, nobody knows how hard it is being a CEO and they don't appreciate the stress. I'm like, that's crap. Being a CEO is a great job. Mm-hmm. It's the best job because you can just find the things that you are great at and only focus on doing those. Um, and the things that you're not great at, you hire people for. Um, uh, I mean, obviously that's glib, uh, you know, and, and, and I, wish it was, I wish it was quite that simple, but I think, you know, conceptually, when I think about the contour of my career, like, I can't think of a better job than I have now, and, um, and I can't see a way that it stops doing what it is. So, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm jazz. I'm excited. So you're in it for the long haul, and um, as, as, long, as, long as, it, as long as it keeps going, as long as they'll, they'll keep you, is that Absolutely, it? Absolutely, <laughs> exactly. As long as they'll have me. That's right. Do you feel like you have more, like, you know, hypothetically, if, if it were to blow up today, and I, I'm sure that that's yeah. bad karma. I don't want me to put it in the world out there, <laughs> but I'm sure you guys are going, going strong, obviously. I mean, do you think that, you know, that you have a, few, a, a couple more of these in you if, if, you, if you had to? I don't know. I don't know. I have this one in me. I feel like we're at the foothills of a very tall mountain. Right. Um, and so I think that can keep me busy growing, climbing that mountain for a very, very, very long time. 
if I fall off that mountain or the mountain blows up, I'll figure something out. But, well, uh, but for now, it's like I've got my eyes way up in the clouds, and uh, I feel very small from where I sit. I'm not sure there's much of a better place for us to wrap than there. That's fantastic. Uh, and it also is inviting. Of uh, it, it also presumes an invitation back at some different point on the mountain. So we'll, we'll have to have you back, Daniel. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.